Welcome to episode 15 of the Documentary Podcast. I am Steve Byrne. And I am Kathy Kulaszewski. This episode is going to be themed on the recently completed Toronto International Film Festival, including interviews with directors of two key films, A Flickering Truth and He Named Me Malala, and a little bit of chat with Kathy about some of the movies she saw when she was out in Toronto. So unfortunately for me, mainly, I was not able to make it to Toronto this year, which was very disappointing, but um, I'm happy that Kathy was able to. It sounds like she saw some very interesting stuff. Is there anything that jumps out that you would want to share and talk about? Um, well, most notably, I mean, a couple of things happened. One, um, if people have been following the news of the Amazing Grace documentary um, about Aretha Franklin, uh, they will know that it was supposed to premiere, or not premiere, because it was supposed to premiere at Telluride, and, and, it, and it, an injunction stopped it from actually screening there. And then it was then followed up the next weekend to premiere in or to screen in Toronto on opening night, and it was pulled from that festival as well. Um, and so that was one of the highlights that I was looking forward to in it, and and many other people, because as I stood in the line um, getting my tickets, there were a lot of people kind of confused, annoyed, um, and trying to figure out what to do with the exchange and what they were going to see instead. So um, that was kind of a disappointment. But of course, I focused on the negative and I will not do that anymore. The day job here as an entertainment editor, of course, we and being in Detroit, we followed that story pretty closely. And it's definitely um, it's a it's a crazy one for sure, you know, gets into question of, you know, whether there's was prior restraint involved when with the injunction not showing in Telluride and you know there's so many people that really 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 want to see this Aretha movie and then you know I think she just the best we can tell she thinks she's being treated unfairly or is not getting her just due if this movie gets out there so I imagine we're going to be talking about it again as you know this year or into next year's because you know you have to think that in some way or another this movie is going to see the light of day. For sure. We hope so very much. But I did end up seeing a, a, a great selection of films. I was only there for one full day, um, but I was there for opening night and um, and luckily was able to snag tickets to the um, world premiere of the new Michael Moore documentary, Where to Invade Next. I would have to say of, of my whole time there, um, that was probably the thing that I was most excited to see, partly because he hasn't had a film out in six years. That was a film that, uh, that I was surprised that I was able to get tickets for. Tiff always tells you, you know, on day of, movies that are off sale um, at 7 a.m., they will, you know, release a, a few more tickets, and, and, you know, it's kind of a crapshoot, but, boy, I was – literally, we were late for school because I <laughs> waited so that I could get tickets before I ended up getting on the train to head into Toronto, and I got them, so I was really excited about that. Um, it was a sold-out crowd. It was a very enthusiastic crowd. Um, and, uh, and it was a, a remarkable film. Those Canadians always respond to movies that are somewhat critical of America based on my, uh, experience at TIFF or, or hot docs. Just seems like that, that stuff plays well. Though I also thought, have to say, you know, he kind of kept secret, you know, and I haven't seen the movie. He kind of kept secret what it was really about. And it now turns out that that title was a little bit tongue in cheek. And it, I assumed it was going to be more a movie about, you know, critical of the, you know, the U.S.'s war machinery. But it 
tends to be more of an exhaustive look at, you know, why the U.S. is falling behind other countries. Is that correct in my reading of that without having seen it? Uh, that is exactly correct. I mean, he essentially, um, you know, it does open with the scene that he is being summoned by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, so you think, okay, where are we going with this? Um, and, of course, in his Michael Moore uh, fashion, he says that they they don't know what to do anymore and they need him to plan the next war. So he essentially sets off to invade not countries like Syria or China, but Italy and Finland and Germany and France. And essentially he's there to take the best of what those countries have to offer, things like health care, paid leave, uh, penal system, you know, uh, their drug, their solution to their war on drugs, um, school lunch, whatever, and 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 claim it for the United States. I mean, he says more than once that many of these principles were founded and grounded in American ideals, like unions and a healthy middle class, um, but most importantly, equality for all. And he's going there to kind of reclaim them for America. He's very critical of, uh, surprisingly, of America's domestic policies and really gets at that idea. He is? Yes, I know. Crazy, right? at the idea of institutional racism and how it's enslaved um, and disenfranchised and essentially destroyed a huge part of our population, obviously, um, African-American men. So it is a heavy topic um, in many regards, but it is Michael Moore and his um, satire at its best because there were laugh-out-loud moments um, at some of the absurdity of what we as a country tolerate or willfully ignore and maybe you're right because we were in Canada. Um, there were m- so many laughs, but for me as an American, and even though I was laughing too, um, and but I'm an easy crier, so I teared up out of frustration, sadness, anger, and embarrassment over some of the things that he pointed out, things that I knew, but when it's so blatantly put out there in front of your face, you're just, you're you're heartbroken and you're frustrated with your own country. So that's kind of what I walked away with. Um, but it's also a very funny movie. It's full of optimism. Um, his crew actually called it Michael's Happy Film, which I thought was kind of funny. He mentioned that on stage in the Q&A. Um, he said, all problems or no problems, all solutions. Um, but he's very optimistic, even though he's pointing out all of these kind of faults and flaws. Um, he believes we're at a turning point in our country. And that was interesting to see him be um, so bright because he was pretty dark in his last film. Um, which was uh, um, capitalism, a love story, and uh, and people I think were kind of expecting that same darkness and came away really surprised. Yeah, I mean, I think whatever you think of his politics or the solutions he tends to want to see happen, I think you definitely have to believe he is you, to your optimism. He's a patriot. He wants to see the U.S. do well. That's why he berates it and what he sees as his issue as is the issues with there. And, um, you know, and reading a few reviews, it sounds like you say he had a little bit lighter touch than he has in some of the other movies. And sometimes I do think his sledgehammer um, can start to weigh on you as a, as a viewer. So I'm very excited to see this one and um, looking forward to, to ma- making it stateside. Yeah, I mean, he admits that he will be challenged on a lot of the assertions because he didn't point out a lot of the failings of these other countries that, that are are real 
criticisms. But as he put it, he went there to pick the flowers and not the weeds. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how this is received. On, I, I think I would imagine a spring release of this. Um, he was literally taking bids from the stage, jokingly, um, on uh, a distributor. Um, but Sounds very capitalistic of him. Yes, and um, but we're going into a presidential election, and all the topics that are hit here are things that are being touched on right now on the campaign trail. So it is not a coincidence that it's being released at the time that it is, I imagine. So something else. We talked about Michael a little bit. There has to be, give us at least one more, before we go to an interview, uh, give, us, give us another highlight or two. Um, I saw a film called Hitchcock and Truffaut. This was a film uh, about, um, back in 1962, um, French New Wave director Francois Truffaut was a great admirer of Alfred Hitchcock and basically conducted a week-long interview with him dissecting his um, career film by film. And um, the interviews are only taped interviews, um, and there was a still photographer there. And so you're only hearing that. You're not seeing footage from that, but you're seeing lots of great clips from Hitchcock films throughout his entire career, kind of talking about him as a master of cinema. And he brings in the director, who is Kent Jones, who coincidentally also serves as the director of programming for the New York Film Festival. Um, He talks to, you know, great great directors like Martin Scorsese and, and David Fincher, and they talk about how important not only Hitchcock, well, not only how this, how important this book was for many of them growing up and how it really did shape uh, how they viewed cinema and how it really kind of fueled the fires of their venture into film, but also um, how much they loved Alfred Hitchcock. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, at the time, you know, he was kind of considered not an artist in the way that you know, we would look at him today. And he was flattered by Truffaut reaching out to him and wanting to learn about him and discuss his work. And as a result, this great book and now this great film um, have, has emerged from that. Yeah, a couple of people in my, you know, social circle who I would consider film geeks are super, super excited about this one. And I will, uh, even though I'm not even sure I rise to their level of geekiness, I can't wait to see it. It sounds like basically a master class in film and um and seeing two super intelligent people or at least hearing two super intelligent people in cinema masters talk about the craft it sounds uh well to me it sounds incredibly exciting so and i know i'll get that that movie's hitting art houses um like pretty much as we speak i think as well the only downfall and this happened with uh, the film about marlon brando is that all of a sudden you want to see all the films of these great masters and so my catalog now of what i need to see um i watched francois truffaut's first film 400 blows um right when i got back from toronto and we're diving deep into the hitchcock library now so it i spend a lot of time on my couch (laughs) yeah i don't have i don't feel like i've seen enough of either of those guys either and you know i've seen several of the main ones but uh like you said i'm sure i'll be diving backwards after watching this movie All right, well, that should be enough of our jibber-jabber, and let's uh, get to the meat of the show. Up next, Petra Brett Kelly, director of A Flickering Truth. The Documentary Podcast would like to welcome Petra Brett Kelly. She is the director of A Flickering Truth. This is the story of a group of cinephiles dedicated to restoring and preserving Afghanistan's rich film heritage. The film just had its North American premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. 
thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. So let's first start by finding out how you discovered this story and where it all began. I was in Afghanistan in 2006 uh, doing a quite different film and at the end of that I realised that I wanted to come back, that I felt this was a rich country full of stories uh, that I really um, enjoyed being in and being a part of. So I got a travel grant to return in 2012 and started investigating a few ideas I had and one of them was I was interested to find out what filmmakers like myself had been doing during the decades of conflict. And I had heard about this slightly mythical place, you know, the archive where these sheds where the films were stored, but nobody knew what was in there and no, even the Afghans didn't know the films and nobody got access and it was a very blocked off area and people tried to dissuade me and said, you'll never get access, you'll never get in there, we don't even know what's in there. Um, and like a lot of Afghanistan, that was said to be run by, you know, a very corrupt um, place and that I would need to, you know, money would need to pass hands before I gained access. But I'm an incredibly determined person, so one day I set off. And it turned out to be a very hot day in Kabul and I was, you know, um, had the headscarf and then and fully covered except for my face walked across, you know, across Kabul a long time, a long way. And I was stopped often. Um, there was a lot of, lot more military on the ground and helicopters overhead. And I kept on being stopped. And I thought, God, this is taking me forever. And the next time I was stopped, I asked the guy, has there been a suicide bomb this morning? Because it felt like a greater level of tension. And he said, no, no, Hillary Clinton has come to town. So it meant by the time I got to the gates of the archive, I was even more determined. And while they tried to stop me and said, no, you you can't come here, you can't come in, I persevered. And I literally pulled out the line, I've come all the way from New Zealand to see your films. And eventually, because it was pretty clear I wasn't going anywhere, another person came out and another person. And then, and then they said, all right, come inside and meet our new director. And literally, Arafi had started just previously and he said let's discover the films together and so I began filming and filmed off and on for two and a half years as it was revealed what was on the films and also his whole plan to get those films out into the communities. I read somewhere there's 8,000 hours of film footage um, that is either in the process of being restored or yet to be discovered. No it's 8,000 hours of films drama, documentary, uncut footage, and unprocessed footage. So it's it's sort of a varying degree of, of states. And they don't do film preservation there. They don't have the equipment or, or, the, or the funds to do that because film preservation is an incredibly exact uh, process. And, you know, for one film it can cost $100,000 to restore what they are trying to do is digitize the film, so make them create a file of them so that at least they have, a, you know, the film in some context somewhere. But even that process, they don't have the right equipment. Power goes off all the time. So some of the films continue to deteriorate. Can you talk a little bit about um, what what they're discovering, what you saw being uncovered, uh, and why it's so important to get this preserved in some way. Right. So it's, so the films state over the last 100 years of Afghanistan's history, 
Um, and they are remarkable, you know, as you'll see in the film, really surprising films, um, really interesting, dramatic approaches to their own history. Of course, newsreels, but some quite shocking newsreels. And then, you know, through the course of the film, I focus on three characters who, in varying ways, have risked and risked their lives to save these films. And for them, it's um, a very important... One of them says, this is my family. He had been living in the archives, actually in those rooms for 32 years, waiting for somebody to come and preserve them. And he sees them as his family. And Arafi, the main character, for him, he was, you know, he left... Um, 20-something years ago and had been living in Russia and Germany and then was brought back to try and save these films. And um, for him, he sees his country that, you know, as we witnessed, um, experienced the first democratic transition of power ever in its history and then the largest, with, you know, military withdrawal ever in human history. So it's at an incredible crossroads and he feels that his country, country can't move forward without acknowledging who it is and what it has been in the past. And also because it's such a tribal society, to understand each other and across languages and across culture. So he feels that it's really important to save these films, for people to see them and to understand what they had been in the past and what they can be in the future, that they don't need to be a, a country defined by conflict or occupation by other countries that they can stand up on, you know, on their own two feet. When the Taliban was coming uh, into power in Afghanistan, these films fell under some pretty, some big threat. And, you know, what was left is what we're looking at now in your film. But what happened? What was the Taliban doing and why were they doing that? Can you give people a little bit of the scope of that history? Yeah, well, it's like, you know, it's it's like what IS are doing at the moment. They're crushing culture, burning burning what they see as propaganda, you know, burning films, literature, uh, you know, not allowing any music to be played. Um, it's just basic thuggery and controls inflicted on a people, and, and that was happening during the Taliban era. And so they would create, you know, these huge fires and burn films and books and... You know, it, it's just disgusting practice. Um, and even today, I said, you know, that they are bombing beautiful artifacts and, and, you know, historical buildings. So that happened during the Taliban era. And, you know, I won't reveal any everything that's in the film, but, you know, one of my characters was very instrumental in, in saving the films. And he's a simple gardener. So the belief in these films is is, is, re is real and it's very important to them. And also in a country like Afghanistan, which has about 70% illiteracy. So films, you know, to see something or hear something is how the people will understand, be educated and learn about themselves and, you know, and their culture. And that makes the films even more important. So when Arafi said, let's discover these films together, what surprised you? What did you see that you had no idea existed? I think that there is definitely, um, you know, the American people have seen a very um, narrow view of the Afghan life. And this was a bit of an eye-opener seeing some of the footage from the 60s and 70s. So could you talk a little bit about kind of your reaction to it and what you were expecting? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I was expecting anything. Um, 
you know, that my intentions to make this film were based on the fact that, you know, also in New Zealand we received propaganda of what the situation in Afghanistan was and who were the Afghan people. And so that was one of my main drivers, was to show a different side to this people. You know, I think along with them when they would, you know, bring out films from, from the rubbles or the stacks and thread them into the into the projector and then it was revealed what was on the films. You know, a lot of them were really surprised and, you know, for me it was incredibly, uh, this wonderful, rich history um, through the last 100 years showing, you know, a pre-conflict Afghanistan of beauty and openness, you know, and certainly within Kabul where women, you know, were wearing mini skirts and going to school and being educated and an openness there and, um, you know, and so I think those are the aspects that Arafi wants to get out through his mobile cinemas to show people, you know, th there was a different world here and, and we can be that again. There was some tension in the film um, and some threat of violence. And I'm just curious, can you talk a little bit about what was happening in Afghanistan politically while you were there and what challenges you faced as a filmmaker? Um, well, we were there 2012 to, to, to last December was my last trip back. Um, and so that period was, you know, the conflict. It has become even more unsafe. The Taliban has has moved into more areas of the country, as you witness in one of the one of the scenes in the film when they discuss, well, where can we actually take these films out to? Um, so that was all happening. Also, there was the lead up to the elections, which was incredibly tense. Uh, and, you know, the cities were in lockdown and there was no, you couldn't go out after dark. And all the, you know, a lot of foreigners were evacuated. Um, but, you know, I, I knew I wanted those scenes. And so we stayed. And that was both an incredibly tense time, very a lot of anxiety, but also... You know, and that day of the elections was was a beautiful experience for me. And we had elections in New Zealand around a similar time, and it frustrated the hell out of me that, you know, at home people couldn't be bothered getting out of bed if the voting booth wasn't just down the road. And there in Afghanistan, they queued for hours through the snow, the rain, the sleet, the hail, you know, through the threat of the threat of the Taliban, the Taliban delivered night letters. They're called, which are which are threats through the night before the elections, and yet still people got up and went and voted. And that so that was you know a, a really emotional day on many levels, but fascinating to have been in Kabul on that day, where there was lockdown, so there was no vehicles. You had to get a permit to have a vehicle, and we got a permit, but we were one of a handful of cars driving across that huge city which is usually bustling and congested and and you know quite different to that day and there were other instances while we filmed where it became very unsafe when we went out in the mobile cinema the van broke down in a very um, dodgy area very Taliban heavy area at one stage and the driver said to me put your burqa on and stay in the car and we were there for hours and that, that there was a lot of tension there but you know I don't go to those countries without understanding that there is that possibility. I mean, it would be different if something like that happened in New Zealand. I'd be, you know, I'd be really freaked about it. But 
you know, we were prepared for those kind of instances. My cameraman, Jack Bryan, tonight, we don't travel with security. We don't stay in hotels. We keep a very low profile. We rent rooms in people's houses. So we operate in a very different way. We don't do the same thing day after day because kidnapping is a big thing. And so if you become predictable, then it can be charted where you are, what you're doing, and, and then kidnapping happens. So, you know, you know, we had to take all of these things into consideration. I always have a lot of cash on me. And there was one particular night that wasn't there with me. I went back on my own. And um, and there was, um, a, you know, gunfighting and, and a lot of battle around the house I was staying and it was going on for some hours. And so, I, you know, I put my passport and some money in my pocket. I got fully dressed and I lay on the bed and I emailed him and said, this is my plan if something happens. So I'm just telling you, you know, because you'll understand. If I'd emailed anybody else at home, they would have been freaking. But Jake understood. And, you know, you just sort of prepare for situations like that. And what will be will be. So you mentioned your cameraman. Um, the cinematography in the film is striking. And you set the tone right off the bat with some beautiful scenes inside those sheds um, with the light filtering in the dust. Can you talk a little bit about the aesthetic approach to the film? Yeah. So when I first sort of found the, the film idea, I, I sort of, yeah, Afghanistan is a place that you taste, it's very tactile, you can taste it, it's very dusty, it's in your throat, it's noisy, you know, I'm talking about Kabul in particular, but the rest of the country is dusty as well, but not necessarily noisy, but so it's a, it's a place that you really feel and you smell and you have, all the senses are alive with it, it's, it's a really, you know, it's an exciting place. And um, so I knew that I wanted the contemporary footage, as in the footage that we were shooting, to integrate and to flow with the archive. I didn't want it to be bright, shiny, glossy footage. And then the archive is old, you know, film reels, dusty, dark, you know, sometimes black and white, um, diluted colours. And so I said this to Jake, this is what the look at the aesthetic I wanted. And he said, okay, leave it with me. And he went away for a couple of weeks. And then he said, okay, I've bought these two lenses. And literally, you know, some grandfather in the US had passed away and the family had found a case with these two lenses in his, in his garage. And so Jake purchased those and those were the two we used and they were absolutely beautiful pieces of glass. And, you know, it, it challenged me to, to direct only with two lenses, but, um, but it gave us such a beautiful look that, um, that I think you can kind of, you know, get a sense of what we experience when we're there, the dustiness and the taste of it. And, and also I wanted the feeling that because, you know, the films are in the ground. You walk on them, they're everywhere. And that so they are part of the buildings. They are part of the fabric of that place. They aren't just stacked in some vacuumed rooms like a lot of archives around the world. They are, you know, part of the building. And so I wanted that kind of feeling as well that it was, you know, the films were all around you. They were part of the senses that, you know, get plugged in when you go there. So, and finally, before we let you go, talk a little bit about the, the next steps for the film, the trajectory. You're, you're finishing up in Toronto. You're there now. Um, what's going to happen after, after Toronto? So, yeah, I had the world premiere at the Venice Film Festival and then came on a plane straight here to Toronto and the, and the screenings here have been really wonderful. And now the film, you know, next week it's in Rio and then it's in 
Warsaw. Actually, I don't know. It's it's in many places, Warsaw and Reykjavik and Amsterdam. It, it goes on. And so it's really important for me that um, that the film sort of raises an awareness of the archive and hopefully there may be some organisation or someone will step forward and say that they will help them because, you know, they do need a lot of help to protect these films to restore them if possible. Well, that's fantastic. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Petra Brett Kelly is the filmmaker for A Flickering Truth. Thanks again. Thank you. Up next, we have an interview with Davis Guggenheim, the director of He Named Me Malala. The documentary podcast is pleased to welcome Davis Guggenheim. He's the Oscar-winning director whose work includes An Inconvenient Truth, Waiting for Superman, and It Might Get Loud. Davis's latest project, He Named Me Malala, is the story of Malala Yousafzai, who survived being shot by the Taliban in Pakistan because she was advocating for the rights of girls to go to school. Welcome, Davis. Uh, this film was initially not planned as a documentary, but a Hollywood feature film based on Malala's book, I Am Malala. So how did you yeah. become involved, and what drove the decision to make this a documentary? Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald um, are Hollywood producers. They ran DreamWorks for nine years, very successful, and they were the ones that were chosen to, to get the life rights by the family. And they sat down with Malala and her father in Birmingham, England, and when the family said, yes, we want to work with you, they went home to their hotel in Birmingham, England, and Laurie uh, couldn't sleep that night. And she, I think she felt like making a movie just didn't feel right that um, this family was still very fragile. And anytime you make a movie, a bigger movie, you know, it starts to distort and twist the truth a little bit, um, as movies do, and, and, and by necessity sometimes. And they also just felt like this girl, this real person, Malala, that, that who would play her? She's so singular, she's so unique, and that, that what they saw sitting in her kitchen was so extraordinary. And I thought it, it's kind of, true producerial bravery to, to say let's make a documentary instead and they called me they said uh, hey would you would you be interested in doing this and 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 I said give me a few days and I read more about it and because it was just about a girl who got shot in her school bus so you know that, that was, wasn't enough I, I wanted to know you know whether there were some deep thematic stories that were important and right away I got pulled into this idea of a father-daughter story and this these two people choosing, these two ordinary unknown people choosing to speak out and risk their lives for what they believed. And to me, that was a very, very compelling idea for a documentary. Oftentimes when you're doing a film about famous and noteworthy people, which you have done uh, often in your career, it's hard to kind of peel back the onion a little bit and get to know yeah. the person beyond the public facing side of them. Um, so yes. how did you kind of approach that as a, as a filmmaker and storyteller to kind of get to the heart of who Malala was? It's not only the, the, the challenge, it's, it's the most important thing that you do for any movie, is, for me anyway, is to get deeply inside the character that you're trying to portray. And you're right, when it's a famous person, famous is probably not the right word, but someone the audience think they already know. You're dealing with sort of baggage. You're dealing with baggage like, oh, I think I know her. And so what I, I, I 
they do something very opposite than most filmmakers do. Usually filmmakers start and they, you know, you go to their house and you bring in cameras and lights and you know, suddenly 15 people are chomping around the kitchen and, and suddenly this whole sort of relationship changes. Uh, and it feels like this army has invaded your house and, and, and people tend to get closed off. And so lately what I've been doing is doing these audio only interviews. So I arrived at the house by myself and I set up a really nice microphone and I just sat in Malala's office and we sat and talked for three hours and I had no notes and I had no preconceived notions of where it was going. And she immediately understood that I was trying to understand her, really understand her and, 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 and hear from her and, and tell her story. And that was sort of the philosophy I had with her and her father was let me help you tell your own story. You mentioned her father because this is as much about the family as it is about about her. Um, yeah. That dynamic, um, when you go into their home, uh, reveals a lot about um, about their struggle and their bravery. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about kind of what you encountered when you were na- then started filming and seeing the interactions and the relationship that she has with her dad and with her mother? Yeah. I mean, I have two daughters. I have a son and two daughters, and my daughters in particular are a complete mystery to me, um, and we're very close, but I struggle with how I can inspire them, I struggle with how I can encourage them to feel confident and equal, even, even in Los Angeles, where schools are safe. And... I wanted to know what, what was this magic ingredient that this, this father and this daughter had that, that, that made them so passionate, so confident, so strong, even in a very patriarchal, especially in a very patriarchal society where women, some, some women don't even have names, some women don't have basic rights. Um, so that was very important to me, to, to understand the nature of that relationship more than anything. You know, um, And the other part was, as you said, you know, it was just, getting to know them as a family and to, and to see them as real people. I think sometimes you, especially someone who's defined by an event, Malala is defined by this event of being shot on her school bus and then winning a Nobel Peace Prize. You tend to sort of, it tends to overshadow everything else. And to me, being shot on her school bus is not the point. The point is, is that Malala decided to speak out, to risk her life because they were taking away the thing that was most precious to her, her schools. And she chose to stand up and be on camera and challenge this, as a young girl, as a 14-year-old girl, to challenge, she was doing it when she was younger too, to challenge this very scary group of people who were killing people and blowing up schools. And to me, the movie builds towards that choice. And I think said a lot in movies that characters are defined. The character of characters are defined by the choices they make. Malala's choice to speak out, her father's choice to let her. Have your daughters and your sons seen the film? Yeah. My daughter saw it last night. Oh, really? Um, in, in Los Angeles. And uh, my daughter, who barely even talks to me now, she's 14, and, and we're very close, but she, like, you know, 
she's, she's being a classic teenager. Uh, uh, she texted me. She brought a couple friends, and, and she did. said, Dad, I'm, I'm very proud. Wow. Very proud to show my friends the movie you made. And, uh, you know, it, this movie plays to girls really in a really strong way, which I find very gratifying. We showed it the other day to 6,000 girls in downtown Los Angeles, 6,000 girls. Uh, these are, you know, from some, some, some tough schools, from some of the tougher parts of Los Angeles. Um, and you could hear a pin drop. You know, and I wondered whether the story about a Pakistani girl would be even remotely interesting to a, an African-American girl or Latina girl from East L.A. or Compton. But the movie played really well. And, and, and I think, to, to me, that's, that was a point. It's like, I want girls to feel like this is their story. And that's why I sort of stepped out. I got out of the way in this movie. I, I wanted Malala to tell her own story. I, I wanted her to feel very, very much her voice so that she could speak to girls. There were some moments in the film that um, you, you, you got some voices from folks back in Pakistan, and it was in stark contrast uh, to kind of the overwhelming um, uh, adoration of her. Uh, what are they kind of experiencing from people in Pakistan, but also, I mean, you see around the world she's admired, but there seemed to be um, a very different vibe coming out of her home country. Yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking because there are people in Pakistan, I mean, a large majority of people hail her as a hero. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And some of that I would equate to lack of education. <laughs> you know, when, when you're not educated and, and you read a headline or hear a news story, you, you're more, more susceptible to believing lies. But, you know, people say, well, she's a tool of the West and she's a product of her father. Or some even say she's a agent for the CIA. It was all ridiculous. And it's very painful to, for them because they know that if they go back, people will understand them. Like, part of the part of the criticism of Pakistan is, you know, why should she come home? You know? But it's very clear that, you know, if she goes home, they'll try to kill her again. I mean, the, the Taliban has, has reissued threats against her and her family. So they're kind of stuck. And they're, they're yes, they're in England, um, but they long to go home. They long to be back in their home where they lived. So one more question before I let you go, because I know your time is tight. Um, you have uh, on your uh, resume, you know, films that include Barack Obama and Jack White and all of these very, um, I don't even know the word to describe. I mean, they are, I, I used the term larger than life earlier, I believe. But where does she kind of fit? Well, someone like Jack White, Detroit's own. Yep. You know incredibly dear to me like he's I was going to say he's a rock star but he is actually he's a rock star I mean he is, as a person he's such a an incredible story guy he sort of like came up and you know a true artist um yeah, I, I never made this choice consciously but as I look back I, I really have only made movies uh, about people that inspire me and um, I want to know. I guess I guess you know, making a film is like sort of going on a journey, and you want to 
learn something and you want to uncover something and you want to, and, and I, you know, with Jack White, I just wanted to know, like, how did, how did that happen? How did this, this genius, this raw talent, this, this magical performer, how did, where did that come from? Uh, and some of that carries over, it, it, that, it's all of that carries over to, to the, this, this thing about Malala. It's like, well, this girl from Pakistan, how did this happen? <laughs> how did this father and daughter become these people and uh, I'm just fascinated by human beings and, and, and what makes them become who they are and and, um, and, I, and I, on a very simple level I just want to be moved you know sometimes I can get very dark and very cynical I can sort of like be closed off and so telling a story and, and has this way of opening me up and and challenging me Telling these stories sort of has a sort of a therapy effect on me as I, as I tell them. Thank you very much for joining us on the documentary podcast. The film hits the theaters nationwide on October 9th, um, and we wish you luck. Kathy, thank you so much. It was, it's a pleasure to be on your show. That is going to wrap up episode 15 of the documentary podcast, which was devoted to the Toronto International Film Festival. We want to thank very much our two guests, Davis Guggenheim and Petra Brett Kelly. And we will hope to see you or hear from you. Um, if you have any reaction to the show, you can find us on Free Film Festival's social media. And otherwise, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks when we'll come back with another show. Thanks. Bye. See you. You've been listening to The Documentary Podcast. It is co-hosted and co-produced by Steve Byrne and Kathy Kieliszewski and edited by Kathy Kieliszewski. I am Steve Byrne. I am the arts and entertainment editor at the Detroit Free Press and also the executive director of Free Film Festival. Kathy is the director of photo and video at the Free Press and the artistic director of Free Film Festival. You can find us on iTunes and on our website, freepfilmfestival.com, as well as follow us on Twitter at freep underscore film underscore fest and on Facebook at facebook.com slash freepfilmfestival. Music by Killer Tracks with the song Detroit Rhythm by Chris Lang and Eric Cunningham. <laughs>